Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane, and we have an hour of science for you. A big thank you, though, to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. With me now is my team. Of course, they are joining me via the, uh, the interweb. Uh, good morning, Dr. Linden. Morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? You doing I'm, all right in there? Oh, it's yeah, very it's great. comfortable. It's great. There's plenty of room in here. You know, I've got, uh, got more, all my buddies from the other shows in here. They're, everyone's around. So it's, it's, it's cool. It's great. I miss the guests, but uh, we'll get those online in a few minutes. So that'd be cool. Morning, Dr. Ray. Morning, Dr. Shane. Uh, yeah, you are looking well. And, uh, and, and I have to admit, I am pretty pleased with the, the haircut self-grooming. I had to do a trim over the week. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't have a mullet and... Uh, it doesn't look that different than, than normal. Although, you know, when we're when it when it's safe, I, I, I wouldn't mind actually getting uh, going to an actual barber. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, my hair apparently has gotten out of control, according to the person I live with, which is, uh, you know, I'm sure Dr. Laura is going to make some bald jokes later in the in the show. But uh, good morning, Dr. Laura. Good morning, Dr. Shane. We might start with your news. Is it is it COVID bald re- baldness related? It is. Spoiling my news. Sorry. Yes. Yes, it's about it's about bald men being more susceptible to COVID nineteen. That sounds outrageous. Can I take a brief comment on Dr. Ray's hair, which is looking very. Is that gel that you've? No, no, with? no. It's just when it when I, I come it back. I don't have to use product. It just stays there all day. It, I, it looks like you're going that real sort of biker slick look. Okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to the news that I wanted to talk about this week. So um, I went down a real research hole and I was thinking of Shane the whole time, you know, because I was worried for my friend mm-hmm. you know, about actually being more susceptible to COVID-19 or at least the symptoms of. But there's been, um, it's really um, trending this week, um, a whole host of articles saying that bald men could be at a higher risk of severe symptoms of COVID-19. So I thought I would look into it and unpack this a little bit because um, the, there was a study published in the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology, and the research say that the link is so strong that baldness should be considered a risk factor. And the lead author, who's at the University of Brown, said, we really think baldness is the perfect predictor of severity. Bold claims, right? Did you say bold so, or bold claims? Oh, I wish I would have said bold. But I'm oh, you funny. missed it. Yeah. I missed it. I always miss it. I'm pretty slow. Yeah. Um, follow-up question. Is the lead author bald? Oh, I know I should have looked that up too. Damn it. <sighs> Losing my research edge. Still spin at home. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so, let, uh, so let's unpack it. Okay. So it's pretty much since the beginning of out- the outbreak, um, it's been shown that men are more likely to get severe, more severe symptoms than women. That came out of Wuhan um, early on. It's been shown um, this week, a study in the UK said that men are twice as likely um, to suffer mortality than women from COVID-19. And increasingly, scientists believe that it's androgens, male, these are the male sex hormones like testosterone, um, that can play a role. Did you know that the word for um, androgens in Greek is like man-maker? Yeah, research that. Really? I was thought that was wow. Yeah, good. You can use that. Thank you. Wow. So, um, <laughs> what do androgens do? So androgens like testosterone, they can actually boost the ability of the virus to get into the cell. So not just any virus, co- SARS-CoV-2. Um, so um, 
So the andro- so I'm going to read you a little bit of science here. Um, the androgens promote the activity of the virus to get into the cell, and they do this by promoting the activity of an enzyme called TMPRSS2. This primes the spike-like proteins on the surface of the virus, allowing the binding of the virus to the ACE2 receptor. Okay, there we go. There's, there's the most scientific thing mm-hmm. I'm going to say today. So everybody is chasing a link between androgens and COVID-19 right now, including, okay, what do we know about androgens? It stimulates um, prostate cancer, also hair loss. And so something that a lot of researchers are are chasing are um, patients that have prostate cancer, which are on anti-androgen therapy. How might that sort of therapy help with COVID-19? So this segues me back into the study. Okay, so in this study, there was 122 patients, not very much when you consider um, COVID-19, and 100... 22 patients in Madrid, and they found that 79% of males that were hospitalized with coronavirus were bald. And they compared this to an aged-matched group um, of looking at the rate of baldness in Caucasian men and found that that was 31 to 53%. So you've got 79% being hospitalized with coronavirus, age-matched to 30 to 50% of men being bald in an age match group. But what they didn't take in, and this is why there's a little bit of um, sort of toing and froing about, you know, whether it is the perfect predictor of severity, is that when you, even though it's an age match group, there is a hugely disproportionate amount of the over 70s um, or the or aging in the coronavirus group, because of course we know that it hits um, the elderly a little bit harder. And so if you, if you kind of think that approximately about 70% of Caucasian men are going to be bald um, when they are older, then maybe it is not, um, you know, it, this link requires a little bit more chasing. Yeah. I, I can tell you that so, I'm, I'm scared. I am now scared. Are you are. Yeah. yeah. And what you about feel like you uh, have too much testosterone. I mean, I've got still some hair. Does that partially ward it off? I mean... <laughs> I don't know. Do you, do you feel like you're fully testosterone you know? Well, some days. Not today. Today I'm feeling a bit crap, you know, like, I don't know. A bit COVID-y. I'm bit not co- sure. Oh. No, no. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. Actually, people might come and cut me out of the studio. Dr. Ray, how are your testosterone levels? May not be a good thing right now. <laughs> He's got a full head of hair. What's that tell you? I like to cook. I clean. I don't know. Um... <laughs> oh, you're going to get in but, trouble um... for that comment. Yeah, but um, one thing that they're looking at is when you um, stimulate, um, you know, male hormones, say women who are on birth control and so mm. forth, how does that fit in with increased um, activity of androgens? So, um, God, fascinating stuff. Well, I'm happy to throw myself on the, the altar of science. If anyone needs a blood sample or something, you know, with regards and a hair sample, uh, that will be harder to get than the blood sample, but, you know, happy to provide. So, just let me know. Well, we're running out, running out of uh, COVID blood samples at the Doherty Institute because, Are of course... Because there's not many yeah. people with it, yeah. Because not many people have it anymore. Uh, so, you, you yeah. yeah, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, very interesting. I can tell that I've been singled out with that story, Dr. Laura. Mm-hmm. And um, as you were texting me last night, because you thought you were pretty funny finding that. But um, it's, it's interesting. It is interesting science. We'll see what happens. Dr. Lyndon, what do you got for us? Well, I tried to scroll all the way to the bottom of the science news feeds this week to find something not coronavirus related. Yeah. Tough, isn't it? It was tough. It was tough. I was like, no, I don't want to talk about that. Last week it was fairly corona free. So I thought maybe we could, you know, keep with that. Um, and I found an interesting study that came out of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies. 
So we talk a lot about what we can do for the reef to help protect the coral reef, but nobody's really talking about what the fish can do. What are the fish doing to bloody look after their own space? (laughs) Yes, it's not their fault that we're destroying it, but... This study that was published in Nature Communications turns out that the best thing that a fish can do to uh, look after the biodiversity of a coral reef is to be big and to be a vego. Hmm. To be a big vegetarian reef fish. So not eat other fish? No, don't eat other fish uh, and be kind of big as well. So this study did a huge tree of life. They looked at about 6,000 different reef species and they didn't just kind of count how many fish there were at all these different reefs. They tried to figure out the function of the different species within the coral reef ecosystem to see kind of what they did and how they helped support reef development, not just now, but they also looked way back in geological time, back into the the Miocene, like 23 million years ago when reefs first started to develop. And they found that it wasn't so much the geographical distribution of fish that determined the success of a reef or not. It was whether they were big enough to move around and whether they were vegetarian. So if they were eating the algae that was on a coral rather than eating the coral itself. Mm, mm. So fish like parrotfish, you know, those big smiley pink fish, um, and also dories, like your surgeon fish, they are really good at supporting uh, ecosystem and biodiversity development, which I don't know, I kind of, I thought that was nice to think of the reef as all working together. We know it's an amazing ecosystem and there's so many different synergies and different relationships that occur there, but having an understanding of how species have evolved and where the evolution has kind of jumped and how fast that evolution has occurred by looking at all of these different species and their roles. I mean, maybe it's a bit um, taxonomy and not everybody gets excited about taxonomy to think of a big tree of life, but looking at the function of these species, I thought was was pretty nice. Hmm. Yeah, that's good stuff. It's good to know which ones are your helpers and which ones have to be there but are less helpful. Uh, well, that's it, yeah what the key species were to help with evolution, then you can think, right, well, that guy is key mm. to keeping the reef healthy. We really need to look after him. Yeah. You know, the this complex- one... Yeah, the complexity, of course, is that I suspect that that answer changes depending on how stressed the reef is at a given time. So, you know, when the reef is really healthy, there may be few of them that are problematic, whereas if, as it gets more and more stressed, the number that fit in the problem, problem category goes up. So, yeah, difficult stuff. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Linden. Dr. Ray, what do you got? So, Dr. Shane, um, food waste is a big problem. The estimates are a third of the food we farm kind of goes off before we eat it. And wouldn't it be great if particularly our fruit was able to last in the fridge for an extra week? Um, and, and so researchers from Rice University in material science have come up with a coating that effectively extends the shelf life of they tested a bunch of different fruit for about a week. And it's from natural products. Um, one could crashly say it's egg white and sawdust, but um, it, it's actually made of things that are cheap, are already waste, and certainly are already in food. Hmm. And, and so what they did was is they did a, a range of tests on strawberries, bananas, avocados, so a vegetable in there and papaya, where um, they coated it, they put it through, they, they came up with a coating that's basically um, uh, albumin, so that's derived from egg white, a little bit of egg yolk, um, nanocellulose which is is actually derived from wood pulp but it's actually already in our food 
sometimes it's that additive that keeps cheese from clumping together. Um, and curcumin, which is a, an extract from turmeric, which is antibacterial in nature. And they put this together in a, in a nanocomposite film, which you, they could easily spray on top of straw or, or dip on and coat strawberries or bananas. It's really thin. It's about half the thickness of your hair, uh, and it washes off in water. And what they showed with comparative studies and is that it made your strawberries not lose water. Uh, it prevented oxygen from coming into them so they didn't break down. And it also had an antibacterial uh, flair to it as well. So it presented, prevented some types of uh, microbial intrusion. Hmm. Um, and, and so it's, it's an interesting study where they used an awful lot of existing science and, and a lot of technology to characterize it, where it's a great discovery that built on a lot of other understanding to come up with something where they even looked at um, toxicity and made sure, well, these things are all already in food anyway. Uh, and uh, as, as a way to say, hey, there are ways to make coatings that uh, can be safe. Now, it's all egg-based, so obviously not vegetarian friendly, but you can wash it off. Uh, but it'd be interesting because the options we have right now is your food's coated, a lot of your food's coated in wax. Yeah, and that does wash off. Stuff. It's edible. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but, you know, this actually would wash off with a just gentle scrubbing. Right. Uh, I'm so keen. I need this. My food is always going off, yeah. but how, is, how are they going to sell it? Is it going to be like strawberries plus eggy coating? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I would come up with a, a better or better name than that. Super saver. I mean, look, the, the amount of things that are in our food that get, don't get labeled because they're processing aids, particularly there's coatings around trying to keep moisture in fruit. A lot of times they're they're polymeric based, they're synthetic. Uh, you'll find them if you you know that airport fruit salad. You go, wow, that looks surprisingly good for being in an airport. Mm. It is surprising because it's probably got a polymer coating on it that prevented the moisture from leaking out. And, and they don't taste good. Well, and they don't. Yeah, they don't have to put it as ingredients. Processing aids don't get listed as ingredients in food in some countries. Yeah. So, um, so this is encouraging. This one, if it's there, I would be less upsetting to eat than some of the others yeah. right did they taste them yeah that was what i was looking for they did toxicity and toxicity does it taste good it was the materials <laughs> group i was really looking for sensory panel stuff i'm like oh, do you boy. go hmm, strawberry with a hint of omelet i don't know it's, exactly yeah you'd be like oh that, that that avocado is a bit eggy yeah. yeah. Alright guys, uh, we got we're gonna go. We've gotta go. I gotta uh, this could He wants go, to get rid of us. I've gotta get rid of you because I've got a guest who's waiting and it's gonna be amazing stuff from Monash. They're talking pulsars and this is the end of an era for me because I, I interviewed Jocelyn Bell who who was the first to discover pulsars some twenty years ago and now one of our researchers doing a PhD down at Monash is doing amazing work in pulsars. It's kinda of cool. I'm excited. So I've got to get rid of you three so that we can uh, move on. Oh. Good, good to see you all, though. And uh, we good will chat again uh, very soon. Thanks, folks. Chat soon. Bye. Bye. Folks, we're going to take a short break for some uh, station announcements while I get this uh, researcher on the line. And we'll be back in just a few minutes. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Three Triple Arts. I'm Stan Gogo Time, and on the line with us now is Adele Goodwin. She's a PhD student from Monash University. Adele, can you hear me? Okay. Yes, I can hear. Excellent. Now you're doing some really fascinating work um, that takes me back a bit to, and I mentioned this to you on email over the weekend. But we had Jocelyn Bell in the studio some God, it must have been 20 years ago. Who uh, some of our listeners may remember, she. She was the person who should have won the Nobel Prize for discovering the pulsar, right? Has, has that been corrected, that error? 
Um, I don't think it's ever been corrected because I'm not sure if it's possible to, but mm. I think that it has. It is now very widely recognised, especially in our field, that she should have won the Nobel Prize for discovering pulsars. Yeah, yeah. Now, before we get into exactly what you've been doing, uh, we're going to need a little bit of a lesson for for some of us here. What is a pulsar? <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, it, it obviously pulses, but tell us a bit about how you get a pulsar. Okay, so a pulsar is what's known as a dense remnant of an, a dead star, basically. So a star that is a bit, a lot more massive than our sun, so maybe eight times the mass of our sun, up to about 20 times the mass of our sun. Mm-hmm. Um, when it ends its life, so it finishes all of the nuclear burning that it does um, over a long time, it ends in a huge explosion known as a supernova. Um, and what's left over after that explosion is a really, really dense um, remnant. Um, and that's what's known as a neutron star. So to put this into perspective, a neutron star is about the size of Melbourne, mm-hmm. but with one and a half times the mass of the sun packed in. So they're Whoa, really, yeah. really dense, dense. objects. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like to, um, this is something that I, I um, a cool fact I think about neutron stars is if you cupped your hands together and filled it with, neutron star material, um, on Earth, you would be holding something that weighs about five Mount Everest or five billion tons. So that's Whoa. just how dense they are. <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre stuff. It's bizarre to conceptualize, you know, we have this idea that matter is mainly empty space, but I suppose in a neutron star, that's not quite true. Um, There's a lot of matter in a very small, small yeah, yeah. area. Not so much it's, space. So what you get just before you get to a black hole. So a black hole is something that is a bit more extreme than a neutron star. Yeah. Now, now how does the pulsar part of it then come into play? Yes, so a pulsar has these um, kind of two beams of electromagnetic radiation that come from its um, poles. And if they are oriented in the right direction to us, we can actually see these pulses of light. Hmm. But that's not very, it's not very common to see that um, because it has to, you have to get lucky that it's yeah, angled yeah. the right way and there's lots of different angles that it can be. So um, what I actually research are accreting pulsars. Um, and so... So basically on their own, neutron stars don't really emit any light. We don't really see them unless they are a pulsar and the beam mm-hmm. is oriented the correct way. But if they're in an accreting system, um, it basically means they're in a in a binary orbit with another star. Um, and because a neutron star is so dense, it has a really strong gravitational field. If the orbit is close enough, um, the neutron star will actually pull material from the other star. And we can see that it gives off a lot of light when that happens. Um, and this material will form a disk around the neutron star. Mm. Um, and we can actually see all of this because it's, 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 it's matter moving around in space and because it's in the environment of the neutron star, um, it, it gives off a heap of radiation. Right, um, so it's right. one of the only ways that we can actually see neutron stars. Yeah. So, okay, I've got a million questions. So let's start. First of all, with, <laughs> with the, and I'm trying to remember this from my undergraduate astronomy days and, and so forth, but with, with the pulsars, how many pulses a second are these things putting out? Like, or how many times, mm-hmm. you know, I, I realize it's like a lighthouse and it sort of sweeps past us if they're pointing in the right direction, but how many of those pulses would you be seeing for, for sort of, like, I know there's lots of different ones out there, but, you know, on average, what, what sort of pulse rate do they have? So it, it actually depends on the pulsar itself, how young it is, because mm. if it's young, it spins a lot faster than yep. when it's older. It's, it spins down over time. Um, but in general, they spin on the order of, um, we see them every second or so, up to tens of seconds. But really coolly, the accreting pulsars spin much faster. So they actually spin at milliseconds spin periods. 
Um, and this is because of that accretion. The accretion disk um, process spins the pulsar up and makes it. They're actually quite old pulsars that are spinning really, really fast. So the one that I um, I observed um, midway through last year that I um, published a paper on this week actually spins at 400 times a second, which so is Insane. So, I mean, how, this this just seems absurd, right? The idea that something that dense and still big—we're not talking, that, you know, ma- that much mass—with that much mass is spinning that fast. That just seems mm-hmm. like insane. I mean, I know there's a lot of insane shit in astronomy. I mean, I, 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 that's why I love it. But <laughs> but this seems like an insane process um, for for something to be spinning that fast. I mean, when when material is is sucked off the companion star. What does that speed of rotation do to that interaction? There, I mean, is that just like not even part of the equation because it's so dense anyway? It doesn't matter, or you know, how does how does that so affect that? Basically, what happens is this: this material grows into this accretion disk, and in um, many of these accreting pulsar systems, they will just quietly we say quietly mm. accrete from the companion into this disk for the like for years. And then at some point, the disk itself reaches the critical mass or density, like it's just got too much material in it. And um, it kind of, I guess you could say it ignites. Um, And when that happens, things start going a bit crazy in the system and material actually starts piling directly onto the neutron star's surface. Um, And that is a super energetic event. And that's what we call an outburst. And it lasts for about a month and it literally releases extraordinary amounts of energy um it releases over the period of a month it probably releases more energy than the sun would in 10 years wow yeah um, so it's heaps of energy being released just because this material is being piled onto the surface of the neutron star um and then the other thing that can happen in these systems there's lots going on but basically um as this material is piling and building up on the surface of the neutron star um it gets condensed down and it can get really, really hot. And we actually get a what's called a thermonuclear runaway. Um, but in kind of layman's terms, that's just a huge explosion on the surface of a neutron star. And these are some of the brightest explosions that we, we see in the universe. Um, it's not quite as bright as a supernova or something, but it's, it's known as an X-ray burst. Um, and they're these huge, really bright flashes that last only tens of seconds mm. and consume all of that fuel that's built up on the yep. on the surface of the neutron star. So is this what you saw last year, one of these these explosions? So so you've been so in some sense you've been monitoring this this system of of two stars, essentially, you know, one a neutron star, one a relatively normal star, and not being able to really see the neutron star. So you I, I how, how do you know it's there? Is it just because it wobbles the location of the other star? How do you know it's a binary star if you can't so see the neutron basically, star? Basically, this system is a bit special because the, the companion star is very, very small. So we actually okay. don't see the companion star. It's only about 5% the mass of the sun so it's okay. very small very small so but it doesn't really give off much emission so we don't see this system um when it's in the quiet phase where it's just quietly accreting mm. we actually don't really see it at all we can see it with really really sensitive telescopes but it's yeah not much um so we only see it about every four years when it comes into this outburst um and we get all of this really high energy ambition coming from the system um and so what we saw was actually we saw the full 12-day process of material spiralling into the neutron star, um, which triggered the X-ray outburst. Um, 
So these events are not common mm, um, yeah. and accreting pulsars are also not common. We actually only know of about 18 accreting pulsars that we've ever seen. In the whole, in the whole universe? <laughs> so in the whole universe? We yeah, know well, we 18, only really yeah. see them in our galaxy because yeah, the ones right. in other galaxies are just too far away. Yep, yep. We only know of 18 of these things um, and we don't usually catch them when they go into these outbursts until the outburst has, is already quite bright. Um, so there's actually been no observations until now of this kind of lead up to the outburst and what's actually happening in the disk and in the system that causes this um, accretion event onto the neutron star. And so that's what we were watching with more than seven telescopes um, in a huge team effort. I have to mention that there were 15 collaborators from five different continents. um, And we were watching with more than seven telescopes across the um, electromagnetic spectrum. So we had optical telescopes, UV and X-ray, all watching um, during the beginning from when there was no activity to when we started getting some accretion happening um, to when the full outburst began and we got x-ray bursts and things yeah. like that. I mean, that's wild. We've, we've only got a minute or so <laughs> go, to go before I've, I've got to let you go, but I, you know, I've got a million questions still. But um, you, you must have had a scenario where you had coverage no matter where, um, where we were in the, orbit, you know, the, the rotation of the Earth. So of those seven telescopes, presumably there's some redundancy, like you have an optical one on this side of the planet and an optical one on the other side of the planet in order to, mm-hmm. to be able to have continuous monitoring. Is that right? Yeah, so we actually used what's um, called the Las Cumbres Observatory Network of Telescopes, and they're really clever. They have telescopes all over the world, and it means that you can pretty much stay on target throughout the whole Earth orbit, um, just because there's so many telescopes and they can switch between them um, when you know that the source is going to come out of the view and stuff. And the other telescopes that we used were X-ray telescopes, which happen to be in space. Um, so they are satellites. One of them is actually on the International Space Station, right. which is pretty cool. Yep, cool. Um, and so they have pretty good coverage, but actually the Earth still passes in front of the satellite every now and then if you're looking at something. <laughs> so that can actually affect yeah. the coverage that you get. That's great. When you publish this paper, did you sort of walk up? I mean, I know you can't do it with COVID going on, but you really need to walk up to your supervisor with a microphone and just drop it and just go, done, <laughs> I'm out. Is that, I mean, this is huge, right? This is huge. Yeah, well, I actually, what happened was I presented this at the um, Astronomical American Astronomical Society conference earlier this week and I had to get the paper ready and I basically two weeks ago it wasn't ready and so I just spent the past two weeks writing the paper. Fantastic. <laughs> um, and it's been pretty stressful so I'm really glad that it's, it's over now and that we did it. <laughs> yeah look um, congratulations on this Adele. It's, it's it's fantastic. I love to hear these stories about bits of astronomy where it's so rare to see these things and it's it's frankly through good good hard work and dedication over long periods of time through networks of telescopes that were able to see some of these amazing events that, you know, when you describe them, are just mind-blowing, but, but real, you know, and, and well, well studied now and, and, you know, well sort of um, theorized, you know, that these things happen. So getting more of an understanding of these and getting real data on them is just fantastic. And the, the, the idea that there's only 18 of them in our galaxy that we've observed is just, yeah, there's not many that, you know, to find and just getting one that happens to do this at the right time when you're watching is just, you know, just fantastic. So uh, good luck with the rest of your PhD. Uh, you know, you probably just submit now i suspect given you've um, done such a great job but uh well, well done congratulations on the paper and keep up the good work thank you very much for having me today. it's great talking to you adele thanks so much that was adele goodwin a phd student from monash university Triple R. 
Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. We have our second guest on the line now. His name is Dr. Scott Hocknell. He's the senior curator at the Queensland Museum and has an honorary position at the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Shane. How are you going? Good. It's it's good to chat to you. It's it's not often that we get people from the Queensland Museum on our show, um, but it's uh, <laughs> it's good to know it's up there and you're doing good stuff. Um, now you've been working on some of the sort of extinct megafauna uh, around Australia. But before we get into the the recent announcement, um, can you give us a, a bit of a picture of when are we talking about when we hear about the megafauna? How far back? Yeah, it's a, it, it's a bit of a misconception. Sometimes people think megafauna just mean dinosaurs or dinosaurs mean mm. megafauna. But um, dinosaurs went extinct, let's say, 65 million years ago, their descendants being birds. What megafauna are are essentially just giant versions of the animals that we see today. So uh, over time, over millions of years, that, that void that the dinosaurs filled uh, was being filled after their extinction by giants of all sorts of things. Mm. Uh, so if you imagine overseas, uh, northern hemisphere, you're talking about mammoths, mastodons, uh, saber-toothed cats, a whole range of really cool big animals. But in Australia, we were different because our continent had been isolated for so many tens of millions of years uh, as it split away from Antarctica. Our big animals uh, started to get big from a whole range range of different lineages so lots of ancestors so giant birds giant lizards reptiles crocodiles uh and marsupials of course our our beloved kangaroos and wombats they all evolve gigantic size so megafauna literally means just giant animal mm. uh, and in fact technically we are megafauna as well um, oh, we, we it, are. it depends yeah yeah you, you can you, it depends which, which way you want to cut it uh but essentially 45 kilos and heavier can be considered to be more modern-day megafauna. But when we're talking truly about the extinct megafauna, the things that uh, went extinct uh, in Australia and across the globe, we're talking about gigantic versions of these things, you know, mm. several hundreds of kilos or several tonnes in weight. Uh, so, yeah, the, the Australian megafauna was totally unique globally. Uh, we had a very strange and, and bizarre group of megafauna that uh, wasn't found anywhere else on Earth. Mm, fascinating stuff. Now, you've made some announcements just very, uh, or in the last week, I suppose, with regards to some new megafauna that went extinct some 40-odd thousand years or died out some 40-odd thousand years ago. Um, what, what's what's different? What's new? Well, this is the first time, the site itself is up in far north Queensland in, in a place called Western Mackay. It's about 100 kilometres west of Mackay. It's in the tropical region of Australia. And it's the first reliable glimpse that we've got of what megafauna were like in this part of the world and, in fact, this part of Australia. Hmm. Uh, to give you an idea, before this research was finished, uh, if you drew a line from Brisbane down to Perth, anything below that line, uh, sort of into the southern states, we kind of have a pretty good idea of what megafauna were doing around this period of time, 40 to 60,000 years ago. But anywhere above that line, including Papua New Guinea, uh, we know almost nothing. We know that there was probably megafauna there and we had inklings of uh, certainly very much older sites, several hundred thousand year old sites. But the big, the big part of this is that we've been able to clar clarify the fact that there were megafauna still around in northern Australia in the tropics when humans arrived. Mm. So when people rock up on the scene 65,000 years ago and spread across the continent, we wanted to figure out, well, 
what did, what types of species would they have actually met? Uh, and so what we've been doing over the last decade or so has been systematically excavating some very rare sites uh, that hold these fossil megafauna species. Mm. And, I mean, give us a couple of examples. I mean, when I think of like a, you know, a big red kangaroo, it, it's, it's already pretty big. Is there a, there's yeah, a big, right. bigger versions? Yeah, that's right. And, and we have three species of, tech, well, we have uh, more than three, but we have three very iconic species of megafauna still around today. The saltwater crocodile is mm -hmm. our largest. Yep. The, uh, the red kangaroo is the largest marsupial. And uh, the emu is the largest bird. Mm. So you imagine those three, but then you massively increase their size. So uh, one, of the, one of the most uh, iconic sort of tropical species, typical of a very warm, hot place, is a giant lizard called Megalania. Now imagine a Komodo dragon that's two to three times the size. So uh, at least twice uh, to two and a half times its length, maybe six meters long. So that's as long as a wow. big saltwater crocodile gets. Mm and up to three times its weight, so up to maybe seven, 600 kilos. And a covered, you know, this is a great thing, when you look at Komodos today, and this, this extinct giant species is very closely related to it, what you notice in the skeleton of this animal is that not only does it have a very robust body skeleton, it has little bones under, in its skin across its entire body. So it's, a, it's a, like a chainmail armour mm. sitting in amongst its skin. So now imagine a six-metre version of this. And lately, research has suggested that this group of goannas, these gigantic monitor lizards, uh, are venomous. They have an anticoagulant in their uh, saliva. And uh, so imagine a six-metre-long version of this wandering around out back Australia in the tropics 40,000 years ago. It's a, it's a frightening uh, consideration. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's amazing to me. I guess this was happening all over the world. But you know, when humans first came to, to this continent, and given we have some really weird stuff here, you, you, I, I can't imagine how they how they interacted with that. I mean, I mean, yeah. to me, I'd be, if I see something uh, a lizard like creature that big that can make make me stop uh, blood clotting, so once it bites me, I bleed to death. Uh, you know, a few hours later, I, I think I'd just be running in the other direction permanently from these big things. I mean, there must have been. Well, that's yeah. What was at the top of the food chain at that point? Yeah, well, these, these giant reptiles were at the top of the food chain. We had five in the tropics. We had five species of reptiles. Mm. We had uh, the saltwater crocodile was, was around at the time. Uh, we had another giant freshwater crocodile. Now, not like the long-nosed freshwater crocodile you see in the, in the northern parts of Australia today. This thing got to about seven metres long and had a massive broad snout, very similar to a Nile crocodile. Uh, so it was honed for eating these big megafauna. And there was even a species of crocodile that lived out on land. So it was actually a land-dwelling crocodile, so it spent probably most of its time on land. Well, that's the idea yeah. anyway about it at the time. Uh, so you've got three giant crocodiles. You've got uh, a big, big lizard. Uh, you've got another species of large goanna that's probably the size of the Komodo, if not the actual Komodo the dragon. We're, we're still trying to figure out where it fits. We have a marsupial uh, predator called Thylacoleo. Now, Thylacoleo is essentially means pouched lion. So this animal was the size of a, of a lioness, but wasn't a lion at all. It was related to wombats and koalas, yeah. uh, probably was arboreal, so lived in the trees and in, in the scrub. Had these big paws with huge recurved claws uh, and carried it babies around in a pouch, a joey's around in a pouch. So imagine, you know, your first footsteps on the continent and you're wandering around, uh, you see this fantastic, beautiful beach, there's uh, all these coconut trees and all that sort of great thing, beautiful fish, a reef covering most of the continent's uh, outer edge. 
and then you wander into the uh, the scrub and this two and a half meter, <laughs> to, three meter tall kangaroo stands up. Yep. It's the first bipedal animal you've seen ever, other than a human, and it carries its kit around in a pouch, uh, and it's got these monstrous, great, robust arms, and and when you scare it, it likely hops away. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. <laughs> Scott, look, we're, we're pretty much out of time, but I think um, what what I'd love to see you guys doing is is putting out a book, especially for you know, um, you know, people from America and other countries coming to Australia, you know, which says you know. We know you're already scared shitless of, of the stuff we've got now, but look at the stuff we used to have because, like, it really makes this stuff yeah, seem tame. Right. I mean, we've got some really scary stuff here today, uh, but, boy, does this stuff uh, leave it for dead. It's, it's incredible to hear these stories. I never learned any of this in school, and I know a lot of people won't have either. It'd, it'd be great to I'm, – I'm sure it's starting to get into the curriculums and that, but really having everyone understand just this amazing history of, of you know, first of all, you know, First Nations people coming to Australia and what they what they encountered and having a better picture of, of you know, that, that sort of um, flora and fauna that, you know, was, was here when they arrived is some seriously scary stuff to, to survive. So Very scary. Yeah. That's right. Well, thanks so much, Scott, for chatting to us. Uh, good luck with this on going works great to see this really good stuff coming out of the museums and um good to chat someone chat someone from uh, the queensland museum which we haven't done i don't think before in in the many years i've been doing the show so thanks so much excellent thank you dr shane that was dr scott hocknell from the uh, a senior curator at the queensland museum and also an honorary at the university of melbourne folks we're going to take a break for uh, a little bit of music and then we'll be back with our final guest we've got some really interesting stuff coming up on uh, how to deal with uh, cats in the wild that are killing off our native animals so hang in there triple r Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go. We've got about 13 minutes to go, and we have our third guest on the line all the way from uh, lovely Adelaide. John Reed is from the University of Adelaide. Uh, good morning, John. How are you going? Yeah, good morning, Shane. Very good, thank you. Now, you're um, you're working on something that's absolutely fascinating. We saw it uh, in news, uh, I guess, a week or so ago now, but um, you, you, this is a piece of technology that's there to address the issue of feral cats um, harming our native animals. So before we get into the technology itself, just give us a bit of an idea of what's going on, because these are essentially domestic cats that are released into the wild in some way that are causing the problem? Yeah. Uh, Sorry, they're, they're obviously um, related to or, or their ancestors were domestic cats. Some of them have been in the wild for many, many generations, ever since Europe, European colonisation of Australia. So there are feral domestic cats living throughout Australia, um, from the deserts to the rainforests to alpine regions. Many of them, you know, several million, are living totally um, unassisted or unaided by people at all, um, living on wildlife and, and rabbits, things like that. Um, of course, there are some more recent escapees or, or wandering pets or, or strays that sort of filter in. But no, there's, there's feral cats right throughout Australia, through deserts, everywhere. Mm. And do they have a, a predator in the system? I mean, they're obviously introduced, but is there something above them on the food chain at the moment in Australia? Uh, so dingoes will feed on, on feral cats. And in places where you have big open plains and there's not trees that cats can hide in, then dingoes can suppress... Um, cat numbers but apart from that no they have few predators you know occasionally an eagle might take one but no there's um in australia unlike places where where cats are natives there are yeah very 
very few predators, and that's that's one of the issues. There's there's uh, very little control over them, and their their numbers are, are largely limited by their food resources rather than by uh, predators. And on that, what what are their primary sources of food? I mean, what what do sort of these feral cats go after? Yeah, so um, I've been dissecting feral cats for about 30 years and there are several other people uh, like me that are doing the same sort of thing. So we've got a really good understanding of the diet of, of cats. Um, they are they're hunters, so they're not scavengers. So they prefer to feed on uh, live animals that they catch themselves. Um, most birds, most reptiles, um, any mammal sort of smaller than four kilos um, fits within their, their prey range. So We've documented feral cats pulling down wallabies, um, you know, four kilograms in size. Anything smaller than that, bilbies, bedongs, quolls, potteroos um, are all uh, fair game. Um, they will feed on on rabbits and rats and native mice and things like that as well. But And uh, a lot of reptiles, particularly in, in summer months in the deserts, they'll feed on a lot of reptiles. Mm. Do they do they hunt alone or do they do they group up? Like what's the, you know, I, I suppose we all have that sort of Hollywood version of what a, a group of feral cats uh, looks like, but have they actually go in the wild? Do they, they sort of, they lone hunters? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the domestic cat and the and the native origins of the domestic cat, there's several of them around the world in Africa and Europe, um, are totally solitary apart from in breeding time and they, they never cooperatively hunt at all. Um, so, yeah, they go about their, their business totally alone. Uh, it's only when they're provided with supplementary food like um, at rubbish dumps or or houses or where people feed them that uh, you get sort of accumulations of cats. But apart from that, they're totally solitary animals. Mm. Now, this is, I mean, this is obviously a pretty big problem because my understanding is in some of these areas, um, and I think this is the work of one of your colleagues, where you, you know, you've tried to re-release endangered animals that have been bred up in captivity into, into certain regions in Australia, but the, the result is not positive because of the number of feral cats there to essentially feed on them. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's right, Shane. So, um, I mean... We've known conservationists and ecologists have known for 50 years that uh, predation by by foxes and cats, uh, particularly foxes, um, is you know the key reason that a lot of Australian mammals have declined. And in fact, Australia has the the worst extinction record for mammals in the world um, over the last hundred years, and that's largely due to predation. And we thought that foxes were the main issue. Foxes are reasonably easy to control uh, with baits um, because they are scavengers by nature, mm-hmm. but um, so attempts to reintroduce, um, you know, threatened native mammals focused on uh, fox baiting and had some initial success. But then, uh, yeah, what typically happens is the cat numbers then build up when there aren't foxes around and cats are much more reluctant to take baits. And um, and so cats have been directly responsible for ongoing extinctions, but also the failure of reintroduction programs. Mm. Now, you've you've come up with quite a, what sounds like a really ingenious and, and smart way to deal with this, a, a new technology called the Felixer. Uh, I've got to ask you first, where'd the name come from? Is it the feline fixer? Uh, yeah, the, yeah, well, <laughs> absolutely. It obviously comes from, from feline and, and, um, and, it, and it does help to fix the situation. It's also a bit of a play on words um, with, with the lick. Um, it, because the, the method that um, it uses is to have the cat, um, you know, lick itself, orally groom uh, toxin and, and get a dose that way. And I guess the, 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 the main premise is that um, because cats are hunters and not uh, scavengers, 
they're typically reluctant to take baits. They're reluctant to go into baited cages unless they're accustomed to scavenging. So true feral cats that are good hunters are very hard to control that way. But instead of you know expecting them to change their behaviour and take a bait or enter a cage or a trap, um, we we do is we spray them with some gel, and that gel contains the toxin. And um, any cat owner and any cat watcher will know that cats hate being dirty. They're very fastidious about being clean, and so that when they get this dollop of gel on them. They'll run off, lick it off, and they'll ingest it that way. So that's that's the that's the basis of the technology. Hmm. And and how does that actually work in the field? I mean, how do you how do you get the cat in the right spot to get sprayed, and how do you know when to spray? Like, how does that part work? So yeah, maybe a bit of background will help. First of all, I started off using some some pipes, some large diameter pipes that a cat could fit down, but a kangaroo or a sheep couldn't fit down, and. Um, trying to sort of dollop some um, gel on them from above with a commercial soap dispenser. Um, and for a number of reasons, uh, that didn't work. Feral cats are reluctant to go into pipes and those soap dispensers aren't fast enough. But we've sort of created a virtual um, pipe with some sensors. So we've got sensors at different levels and we use those sensors uh, to, to determine whether the animal passing them is about the size and the shape and the speed of a cat going past. And if so... Um, we uh, use a sort of spring-fired piston to eject gel onto them at uh, about 50 metres a second, so it's really fast. And, um, yeah, so it's so we basically we use these LiDAR range-finding sensors to determine where there's a cat there, and it's instantaneous. Uh, cats have got amazing reflexes, so we can't make any noise, and it's got to be really fast. So we set our limit to four metres, and um, at, at 50 metres a second, we can hit a cat at four metres before that cat's got time to react. Wow. And how successful has this been? I mean, obviously you're trialling it in the field. How, how well is that working at the moment? Yeah, so we've been trialling them um, under a research permit um, in several states now for about three and a half years. Um, we've done two fairly major field trials as well as a whole lot of pen trials. And, yeah, you're referring to a publication that came out last week about a pen, uh, field trial that was done at Arrow Recovery up uh, near Roxby Downs, which is an area where there are bilbies and betongs, which are a little um, sort of mm. burrowing, and, and also feral cats. And, yeah, in the space of six weeks, we were able to target and kill 31 feral cats without um, targeting any of the bilbies and betongs that were living with them. And in another study that was done on Kangaroo Island, Last year, we had some radio-collared cats and uh, all seven of the radio-collared cats that walked past the Felix uh, activated it and were squirted. And, yeah, within sort of six to 20 hours, each of those um, radio-collared cats was found dead from, from grooming. So that helped to confirm to us that um, not only were we squirting the cats, but also that they were they were dying just like they do in the pen trials yeah now a, a question i suppose with regards to the flow and effects of this because this sounds like an amazing trial and despite the fact that i wouldn't like to be a cat in this situation because you know obviously their their outcome is not good um if the cat numbers are substantially reduced and the cats are partially the food source for foxes and dingoes as well does that does that change in balance have any downward effects on some of the the smaller animals that we're trying to protect yeah, that's a really good question, Shane. You sound like an applied ecologist um, asking a question like <laughs> I that. Just, I just know a lot of ecologists. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, so what we have found um, is that if you control foxes um, and think you're doing a good job for threatened species, often what happens is that 
you then get a, an increase in cat numbers and they can exert the same sort of uh, mm. pressure. And similarly, if we control uh, dingoes, then often fox numbers will increase and also goat and kangaroo numbers will increase and they can have a net um, sort of negative um, outlook on your threatened species. Um, fortunately, we found that the felixes will also target foxes, so we can put them in areas and although they've been designed for cats, we're now improving and testing and, and we think they'll do, be quite good for foxes as well. Uh, they're not designed uh, to be used for dogs or dingoes and in fact that's one of the, the main uses of felixes is in areas where dingoes are valued as wildlife or cultural icons and so we can implement cat and fox control with dingoes there. So um, it's all, yeah, whenever you um, interfere or try and manage with any ecological system, there are sort of consequences and things like that. But we think felixes, because they're so targeted and because they target both cats and foxes, then, yeah, they're likely to have a yeah, very much a net benefit to the the ecology and the threatened species we're trying to protect. We've only got about 30 seconds to go, uh, John, but how long do you think it'll take before we can spread this technology further across the continent? I mean, obviously it's needed in a lot of locations to deal with this problem. Sure. So we've got trials happening in most states at the moment and most states are now coming on board with um, being able to use toxins in them in the field. So we're commercialising them now. We're hoping we've got a non-for-profit and a for-profit company um, set up to commercialise them. So, um, yeah, we're hoping in the next couple of years to have yeah them rolling out across the country. Well, look, it's it's fascinating stuff. It, it sounds really impressive, and it's great that it's so discriminating with regards to which animals it targets. And you know, there's it, when you first hear it, you think, oh, how many different things would end up being um, affected by that? But the fact that it's so specific to the cats it, is great. Good luck with the ongoing work, John. I hope that it means that some of our our native species that are um, suffering so much will be able to build up their numbers without um, so much predation. But uh, yeah, congratulations! Really interesting stuff. Yeah, thanks, Shane. I might just also add that we specifically designed them to be really humane as well. So ah, good. we believe that it's humane for a cat uh, to be euthanized in this way than if it's caught in a trap and then you know, it might be sitting in a trap for 12 hours before it's shot or injected or something. So, yeah, it's the, yeah. the animal fair component and its efficacy are, are driving this, this initiative. Excellent. Good to hear. Thanks for the chat, John. Good luck with the work. Cheers. Thank you, Shane. Thank you. Folks, we're pretty much uh, out of time here on Einstein and Gogo, and we're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It. I uh, hope you've enjoyed uh, all the guests we've had on today. There have been some um, really spectacular stuff. It's good to see all this great science going on across the country. Um, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. I'm going to hand over to uh, Cam, who's going to talk to you for the next hour through the 1 o'clock. Remember, you're, you're listening to Triple R, and have a great weekend. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.